Won't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me be night, Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. If I awake, I am still with you. O that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I've really been enjoying the last few weeks we've been spending in the Psalms. Aren't the Psalms awesome? What a great place to get re-centered in core truths about who God is and who we are. And today, as we consider Psalm 139, a very famous psalm, I want to start by pointing out that this psalm invites us to consider both the majesty of God... That he is great beyond all of our categories and the nearness of God. He's close to us. He's beyond us more than we can imagine and he's close to us more than we can imagine. Theologians say it like this, God is transcendent. He's beyond all of our limitations and he's imminent. He's near with us. And St. Augustine made this personal Late in life, when he was looking back at the early years of his life, when he was rebelling against God, and he spent a lot of years running away from God, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Anybody been there? He would describe that as looking for life in the place of death. 
And late in life, when he looked back on that period, he said, even during that time, God, you were more innermost to me than my own innermost parts. In other words, when I was running away from you, God, you were still closer to me than I am to myself. This psalm invites us to think about God's attributes, His majesty, not in the abstract, but in relation to the intimate details of our lives. Let me show it to you in the text. First of all, verses 1 through 6 ask us to think about God's knowledge. He knows everything. People sometimes use the word omniscience, which just means God knows everything. So everybody say, God knows everything. He knows all events, past, present, and future. He knows all the facts of physics, biology, chemistry, mathematics. As a matter of fact, Peter Kreeft was right to say, all of our science is really our joyful attempts to understand and appreciate God's art. He made it. He understands it not because he discovered these truths, but because he created them. He knows everything. But these verses, the first six verses of our psalm, are not asking us to think about God's infinite knowledge in the abstract. What they're saying is, the Lord knows me. If you just skim through verses 1 through 6, God knows your innermost thoughts. He knows all your conflicting feelings and ideas. He knows all that unconscious stuff that we don't even understand about ourselves, right? He also knows our futures. Sometimes I think about when I'm stressed about something, some events that are going to unfold in the next few weeks or the next few months or the next few years, God already sees what's going to happen. And so when he comforts me right now and says, it's going to be all right, he's not saying, I think we can work this out. He's saying, trust me, it's going to be all right. I can see it, right? So he's got intimate knowledge of all those details of our lives. I don't think I've ever done it before that I inserted some of the pages of my sermon notes upside down. So if you'll just give me one moment. (laughs) Not sure how that happened today. (laughs) We'll discover if there's more pages like that as we go. God knew, though. He was not surprised by that just now. I was. Okay. As we walk through our lives, that's actually exactly what the next note said. (laughs) As we walk through our lives, we're constantly discovering things about ourselves. But God's not surprised. He already knew all of it. He eternally sees all of our lives. And when you ponder that, it kind of blows your mind. Like, how does God knowing all the past, present, and future relate to free will and all this stuff? And I remember in college having late night existential crises in the dorm room with other people talking about that, right? But the more you ponder it, the more you end up at verse 6. Look what verse 6 says. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God's awesome, beyond my thoughts. Or skip down to verse 13 through 16. These are not about God's knowledge, They're about God's creative power and wisdom. Everybody say, God created everything. God is the eternal, self-existing, self-sufficient source of all being. But here, the psalm is not celebrating God's creation like many other psalms do. Lots of psalms say, look at how big and beautiful the galaxy is. Look at the stars. Look at the mountains. Look at the waterfalls. Here, again, it's making it deeply personal and it's saying, God made me. God made me. The Lord God lovingly and wisely formed your body. 
hair color, skin color, personality was not on mistake. God's a great artist. And he made you that way on purpose. Now it's true that we need Jesus to save us from the sinful impulses inside of us so that the same psalmist in Psalm 51 can say, surely I was sinful from birth, from the time my mother conceived me. We need Jesus to save us from sin. But Psalm 139 is reminding us that the deepest truth about us isn't that we're sinners. The deepest truth is that we're God's good creation. And that Jesus came to rescue us from that sin and free us to be the person he created us to be. The more we ponder that, the more we just got to say the words of verse 14. Look at that verse. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Then we could look at verses 19 through 22, which is celebrating the attribute of God's justice. His perfect justice. Everybody say, God is just. But this psalm is not looking at God's justice in some abstract way. It's not trying to give a philosophical definition of God's distributive justice or social justice or whatever. It's also not just trying to do a cold, calculating, cultural analysis. Really what it's doing is teaching us to pray to the God of justice. God, rescue me from evil. Rescue us. Rescue our church. Rescue our family. Help us. Lord, because there's evil all around us, and I hate the evil just like you do. I need your help, God. In some moments in this section, the psalmist gets really emotionally raw with God. Did you know that if you've got raw emotions, you can go ahead and tell God about them? I recommend it. If not, you're going to feel them anyway. You're probably going to tell your friends about them. So might as well talk to God about them. The psalmist teaches us to pray. Look at the raw emotional language of verses 21 and 22. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now that's raw. That's what we call negative energy today, isn't it? That's raw emotions, but many of us have felt that way. And the psalmist teaches us to bring those raw emotions to God. Now, as Christians, of course, we want to read that verse in connection with stuff Jesus says. Like in Luke 6, 27 through 28, where Jesus says, But woe to, uh, sorry, but to you who are listening, no woe here, I added that in. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Or we might connect it to what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, when he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ helps us to properly direct our raw emotion without diminishing it. Instead of hating bad people, the gospel teaches us to hate the badness that enslaves people. But that doesn't make us hate the evil any less. As a matter of fact, the more we love all people, the more we're going to hate the evil that tears people apart. So Derek Kidner wisely comments on these angry verses. The New Testament will redirect this fighting spirit, but it will endorse its single-mindedness. So far we've been thinking about God's knowledge, God's creative wisdom and power, and God's justice. But what I'd really like us to focus on today is what the psalm has to say about God's presence. God's presence. Look at verses 7 through 12 with us. These verses are talking about God's omnipresence. Everybody say, God is everywhere. I want to read those verses again. Would you follow along with me? Starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This is a noteworthy moment because often in the Old Testament when we talk about Sheol, remember the doctrine of heaven or the resurrection has not been clearly revealed yet. So most of the Old Testament passages that talk about Sheol are saying, God, I don't want to be separated from you by death. But the psalmist is saying, even death can't separate me from you. He's expressing a hope that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. If I take my wings, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. God is everywhere. As Anselm of Canterbury put it, God cannot be contained by any place, but God contains all places. John of Damascus said it like this, you can't draw a circle around God, but God himself encircles all things. Thomas Aquinas said it like this, God's creative energy is actively present in all things, every particle of space giving them their very being. He is with all things innermostly. Sustaining their existence. The scriptures frequently emphasize this truth. Ephesians 1.23 says about the Lord Jesus, He fills all in all. Isn't that a good thought? Whatever's going on today, wherever you go, Jesus is filling all in all. Acts 17 records the Apostle Paul preaching and he says about God, He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. It's like we're swimming in an ocean of God's presence. What a powerful thought. Once again, Psalm 139 is talking about God's omnipresence. Everybody say, God is everywhere. But it's not talking about it in the abstract. It's talking about it in a deeply personal way. So here's the deeper proof. Everybody say, God is with me. God is with me everywhere I go. That's what the psalm is about. His presence is with me. Now, in verse 7, the emotional tone of the psalm is somewhat unclear. Where can I flee from your presence? This could mean, God, I'm trying to get away from you, and I can't. Or it could mean, it could be like, God, even if I wanted to run away from you, I could never escape your love. Kind of trying to, it's not quite clear how the psalmist is feeling. And I think that Ambiguity is somewhat productive because can we be honest about the fact that as Christians sometimes we got both of those going on in our hearts? We were created by God so we only can find deep, lasting peace and joy in the presence of God. Our hearts long for Him. There's a natural desire for God in every human being made in His image. Even if we don't know we're looking for God, we're looking for God. But especially for the Christian, we're born again, we're a new creation, we have the Holy Spirit, we long for God's presence, except the parts of us that don't, that would rather run away. Indeed, the Bible tells us about various people trying to hide from God. You remember the story in Genesis 3, after the first sin, human beings rebelled against God, and God comes to be with them, and what did Adam and Eve do? You remember the story? They hid from Him. Sin had brought guilt and fear and shame and they used to bask in the presence of God but now they're scared of it. They're hiding from God. Or Jonah. 
His issue is not so much that he's ashamed, he's just rebellious. So remember the old story of Jonah. He tried really hard to get far away from God's presence. And Jonah learned not as a theological axiom, but as an, a fact of his personal experience that even in the depths of the sea, you can't escape God's presence, right? Jesus explained why many people are repelled from his loving presence. I mean, Jesus is the most loving human being who's ever existed because he's the incarnation of God who says to us in 1 John 4, God is love. This is perfect love in human flesh and yet people were repelled from him and as well as drawn to him. Jesus explains the former when he says this in John three nineteen, and this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So we can be real and honest about the fact that within each of us, there's a certain sinful impulse that may rebel against this fact that we can't escape God's presence. But as we read through the scripture, one of the things that we notice, the attempt to run away from God's presence won't work. It doesn't work. More than that, as we read the scripture and pray and think deeply, here's what I would suggest When we're running away from God's presence, we're running towards something. There's something that I want. And whatever that thing is that I want is a corrupted desire of a good desire for something good that God made. And God is trying to draw us to himself. Which means even when we run away from God's presence, in some weird way we're running towards God without knowing it. But the only way to get what we really want is to come back to the source. And the only way to escape from the destructive powers of evil and doubt and shame and guilt is to run back to God. And by verse 10, it has become clear that the psalmist has worked his way through whatever angst he was feeling and gotten to this place because he says there, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's hand throughout scripture, especially his right hand, is a picture of his active power in the world. And the psalmist is saying, no matter where I go, no matter what I do, God, your love is always with me, guiding me and protecting me and guarding me. I don't think this confession came easily for the psalmist. The psalmist has wrestled with God. The psalmist has walked through the darkness. And I suspect that this is a psalmist who has asked God, where were you when I went through so much pain? Why did you abandon me? As a matter of fact, if this psalm was written by David, as it's traditionally attributed to him, we know he asked God that. The guy saying, God is with me wherever I go. Is the same guy who said, why did you abandon me? But we can go further than that because as we keep reading the scripture, we find God himself on the cross praying Jesus to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perceived experience of God forsakenness is a terrible but real part of life in this broken world. But now the psalmist is saying, I have worked through that experience and I've wrestled with God. And more than that, God has pursued and wrestled with me such that I can say, even though I felt abandoned by God, even though I felt angry with God, he never let go of me. His right hand was always holding me. Anybody want to testify this morning that you've 
at times felt let go by God and sometimes you felt like you were running away from God and then He never let go of you? A lot of us have had that experience. And the same Jesus who cried from the cross the words of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was then raised from the dead. And He was vindicated by His Father and He ascended to the right hand of the Father and is with His Father reigning now. To understand the full meaning of Psalm 139, in fact, we need to read it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just look again at verses 11 through 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. The darkness is as light with you. Whew! Last few years, anybody felt surrounded by darkness? And uh, I joke with some of you guys when you asked me how my sabbatical was and I was trying to not lie. That I'm so thankful for that sabbatical. That was awesome, guys. I never would have known how psychologically messed up I was if you had to give me that refreshing, wonderful time. And uh, I expected going into it, Psalm 23, like I'm going to lay down in green pastures. And I actually booked several Airbnbs in the green pastures to go lay down with Jesus, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) And have a prairie treat. But the problem is, you can take the valley of the shadow of death with you when you go on your trip, right? And often what I found was, man, I got hurt and I got frustration, I got doubt and all kinds of stuff messing up. So I'm just saying, if you have felt totally messed up and wandering in the darkness in the last few years, you're not alone, right? And we've all had times where we've been there. And St. Augustine in his sermon on this psalm, asks the question, how, how was our night illuminated? What does David mean here? And listen to the answer he gives. By Christ's descent into the night. Christ took flesh from this world and lit up the night for us. You see, what the gospel tells us is Jesus is God with us even in the darkness. Jesus is God for us even in the darkness. Jesus is precisely God coming near to us into the darkness so that our darkness can be transformed into God's light. Sometimes we're not ready yet to talk about that transformation though. Sometimes we just got to say God is with me in the darkness. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right in the darkest moments in German history when the Nazi regime was taking over and everything looked like it was going to fall apart. He said only the suffering God can help. God is with me in the darkness. Sometimes we can't feel our way through to the faith and the resurrection part. But we just know God is with me in the darkness. But then there is that hope. Because guess what happened to Jesus after he died? He came back to life. We're not glorifying the darkness. But what we are saying is God's light has entered the darkness. Which means the darkness cannot stay light forever. And if we're in a moment where it feels like. The darkness is going to stay light. What we're just saying is, it won't. (laughs) It won't. That's a proclamation of the gospel. Sometimes by grace we can see it, but even if not by grace we can believe it and hold to it. And the psalmist has worked through this place such that he can say, in the happy moments and in the sad moments, God is with me. In the east and the west, God is with me. In life and in death, God is with me. Everywhere I go, God is with me. So everybody say, God is with me. Now, the title of this sermon is Practicing God's Presence. Practicing God's Presence. What does this mean, practicing God's presence? Well, it doesn't mean you've got to do certain things to make God be with you. God is with you, whether you know it or not. 
But the phrase comes from Brother Lawrence. Some of y'all may have read the book, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And all he meant was this. Practicing the presence of God means very simply cultivating the habits of mind and soul such that we learn to trust God's love and to consciously think about the fact that He is with us every moment, all the time. Practicing the presence of God. What does it mean? It means learning slowly to have my mind transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the word of God so that not just when I'm at church or when I'm having my little devotional exercises at home, but all day, every day when I'm dealing with my kids or when I'm dealing with stressful situations or when I'm sweeping the floor or whatever I'm doing, God is with me. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit surround me. God is enveloping me with His love. God is embracing me. God is protecting me from everything I've scared of. God's going to lead me to a good place. Eternal beauty is surrounding me in every moment of my life. Brother Lawrence's testimony was this. I spent many, 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 many years trying to cultivate the habit of mind to think about that and remember that all the time. It's sometimes good. He was a monk. Sometimes good to read these works of old monks because they say stuff. I'm like, man, God, I've been a Christian for so long. I've been a pastor and I feel like I'm just struggling to even know how to pray. And these monks will say stuff like, it took me 50 years to learn how to pray. What was he doing that whole 50 years? Praying in the wilderness, right? (laughs) It's like, I just started to figure it out. And Brother Lawrence was like, I I entered the monastery and um, said, I'm going to try and... Focus my mind all the time on God's presence with me. And it was like 15 years of grueling effort. It's like, wow, okay. <laughs> Makes me feel a little bit better about my own struggles. Plus, some of us don't live in a monastery, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> some other stuff going on in life. But his testimony was this. I finally got to the place where I could think about God's presence all the time. He's always with me. And ever since that, I've always experienced, no matter what I'm doing, Deep and abiding joy and an overflowing sense of love for God. Doesn't that sound great? Now when I read that, that inspires me, but I'm going to confess, I'm not quite there yet. (laughs) Right? But it inspires me because what he's saying is, what if we just take seriously what the Bible says about God's goodness? What if we take seriously what it says about His transcendence and his imminence that he's beyond all of our categories he's more loving than we are sometimes he's more loving than we think he should be because he's committed to our good rather than our comfort but he's always committed to us he's beyond us and yet he's near he's closer to us than we are to ourselves he understands us better he surrounds us with perfect grace and I'll tell you In the years of my life, not having progressed nearly as far as Brother Lawrence, I'll say that there's times when by grace, I'm deeply aware of God's loving presence surrounding me. And there's times when I'm not. When I am, let me talk to you about the difference it makes. I feel secure in His love in a way that causes me not to be dominated by my fears and anxieties. I didn't say they went away, I'm just not dominated by them. Because I feel secure in His love. Instead of feeling angry or judgmental towards other people, I start to see people as beautiful because they bear the image of God. This is a spirituality that's not just saying, I'll love you even though I don't like you. It's saying, I'm going to learn to see God's presence and God's grace and God's image in you so that I actually see your beauty. That's when we got to the place of mature love. 
What happens to me in the moments where I'm really aware of God's presence, I still grieve for the deep brokenness of the world, but I find great joy because the world is still God's beautiful world, even in the midst of the brokenness. And I find great hope because I know the brokenness won't last forever. In the moments when I'm aware of God's loving presence surrounding me, I just don't fear people and what they think of me. I see the ugliness and destructive nature of sin so clearly that temptations lose much of their power. And it's not, I shouldn't want to do that. It's like, why would I want to do that? I also begin to see the beauty and creative power of simple faith, hope, and love. Simple obedience to God is beautiful because God is beautiful. Now, I wish that those things were happening inside of me all the time. Wouldn't you like to have that inside of you all the time? But I'm not there yet. Sin and doubt are a part of my discipleship journey. I need grace. But the good news is Jesus is very gracious. He's very gracious. And what really I'm trying to do this morning is say, church family, would you like to join me on the journey of the adventure of cultivating a life in which we're always aiming towards constantly practicing the presence of God? That's going to be a life that is going to involve lots of difficulty and frustration and suffering and all the stuff that Christian discipleship involves, but it's a life that is sustained by grace. And it's a life that ends in perfect joy. That's the life I want to be on. Now, if you're asking, how do we do it? This is not a how-to sermon. I don't have time to tell you how-to stuff, right? Um, But really, I don't think technique is the answer. We need to embrace spiritual rhythms that remind us of God's loving presence And when we forget them, we need to reset them. Reset your rhythms. If you want to write down something practical, there's something practical for you today. Constantly reset your rhythms so that you've got spiritual rhythms that remind you of God's loving presence. But even once I've got those spiritual rhythms in place, again, it's not just the times that I'm on my prayer retreat or in a staff meeting or meditating on God's word in solitude or worshiping in community that this is happening. Those are reminder moments that are constantly refreshing us, what we're really talking about is just work on all day, every day, thinking about the fact that God loves you and He's with you. That's what it is. I want to invite you into that journey with me, but that's not where I want to end today. I want to end today with this simple word of encouragement. Even if, after hearing this sermon, you spend most of this week forgetting that you are surrounded by God's love, it will still be true. And even if you spend most of this year forgetting that you are surrounded by God's love, God's love will still surround you. That's the gospel of grace. Would you bow your heads with me and pray? Oh Lord God, we just praise you and thank you for the truth that you are with us. And I want to pray for my friends in here. I don't know what's going on in everybody's heart. I know that some people in here are having a great day and a great week and a great month and a great year. I know some are having the exact opposite. Very likely there's some of us in here who have been indulging in that fruitful and painful experience of trying to run away from your presence. Fruitless, I should say, and painful experience of running away from your presence. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would call us back home now, home to you and thus home also to our true selves. Many of us are probably walking through seasons where we want to fellowship with you, but what we feel is darkness in your absence. 
And I just pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the truth of the gospel would touch our hearts in a deep and special way today. That we would know that even when we don't feel your presence and when we can't see your presence, that you are with us and you'll never leave us or forsake us. As we come to take the Lord's Supper now, I pray that the truth would go down deep into our hearts that we can do life with you, practicing your presence because you took the initiative to come to us. Your body and your blood are our peace. Pray it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.